because you first loved us. And so we come today, Lord, with hearts open and ready to receive from you your counsel, your wisdom, your correction, your encouragement, your direction. Lord, all those things that your word provides for us, a lamp unto our feet. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, that you would give us ears to hear that which you would long to say today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, continuing now our study back through the Gospel of Matthew. And today we find ourselves picking up in verse 17. And as you know, this particular portion of Scripture is classically known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaching a lot of red letter in these few chapters. Jesus giving uh, really this sermon up on a mount as he speaks to his disciples, the, the multitude of followers. Of course, the, the twelve disciples were there, but many others were there as well. Those that had come to be known as his followers, those that were looking to him. And... You're there in Matthew 5, we will pick up in verse 17, but I I do want to remind you how Jesus began this sermon back in verse 3 when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to kind of keep that, that thought in your mind as we work our way through the balance of the sermon. Uh, We won't finish it all today, but we will be looking at a number of verses where Jesus now begins to teach and expound on the law, the commandments. But keep in mind that it is is in the setting of what he has said here in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to the humble of heart. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual poverty before God. The kingdom of heaven is not for the self-righteous. It's not for those who imagine they have merit and standing before God through their own goodness or their own religious activity. You see, the whole system of self-righteousness is built on reducing God's standards and elevating one's own imagined goodness. And Jesus says the poor in spirit are those that come to the kingdom of heaven. They are those who recognize their sinful condition and their need for God's mercy. They see the need for a Savior. They see a need for one who would cleanse them from from their sin and change them from within. An inward conversion, not just an outward conforming. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is our mindset as we now press on in this new section, Jesus introducing in the sermon, now beginning really to teach from the Word of God. And He establishes first and foremost the priority of God's Word. Look with me now in verse 17. Excuse me. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is filled, not one dotting of the I or one crossing of the T. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus establishing the priority of God's Word, the authority, the eternal um, peace of God's, God's expressed character and nature. The character of God's Word is that it is in eternal. And Jesus wants to be very clear. You see, the Pharisees will in time accuse Jesus of actually being irresponsible with the law. They will eventually begin to accuse Jesus of actually disobeying the law. They would get on Him about, the, about Him not honoring the Sabbath. But of course, Jesus never broke the Sabbath as God commanded it. But what had happened is that the Pharisees had added so many rules and regulations, traditions of men, to help you know, what they decided what the Sabbath should look like. That, and Jesus had no regard for the traditions of men. But he says here right up front that he has great regard for the Word of God. Don't misunderstand. Don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. The laws had been misquoted and misapplied. By Jesus' time, religious leaders had turned God's law into a confusing maze of rules. Jesus will six times in this sermon say, You have heard, but I say to you. And this is not Jesus doing away with or changing the commandment, but rather He is going to be teaching the full intention of the law and its ministry to the heart. Jesus spoke against man's traditions and additions to the Word. And he wants his, his, his listeners to be clear. This is not to be misunderstood as him doing away with the law, but rather removing those teachings of men that had polluted and diluted the law. Jesus would not speak against the law, but against the abuses and excesses which men had subjected it to. In truth, Jesus is bringing the teaching back to the law. Jesus is bringing the God's law back into focus in its original purpose. Because the law, this is important, when correctly understood, it reveals the imperfections and inability of man in keeping the law. It reveals man's need for atonement and mercy. The scribes and the Pharisees had taken the law and used it in opportunity to become self-righteous. When in fact the law was given so that men would recognize that they are not righteous. That they need mercy. That they stand poor in spirit before God. I did not come to destroy, Jesus says, but to fulfill. I want to quote a, a famous Baptist preacher from England in the late 1800s, early 1900s, F.B. Meyer. He says on this text, Our Lord's mission was not to destroy, but to construct. As noon fulfills dawn and summer spring, as manhood fulfills childhood and the perfect picture, the rude sketch, so does Jesus gather up, realize, and make possible the highest ideals ever inspired in human hearts or written by God's Spirit on the page of inspiration. Jesus in every way is the fulfillment of the Word of God. The Old Testament and the prophets. Of course, 
the Jewish community, they did not refer to it as the Old Testament. They referred to it as the Law of Moses and the Prophets. And Jesus has come to fulfill that in every way. Consider at least these three ways that Jesus has fulfilled the Law and the Prophets. He fulfilled it by living a sinless life. He alone met the righteous requirements of the law and thus fulfilled its holy standard. No one else has been able to live perfectly before the law, but Christ did. He fulfilled it by living a sinless life. Secondly, He would fulfill all the prophetic predictions of the Messiah. From His birth, His life, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all of this would be fulfilling prophetic words written in the Law and Prophets. So He fulfilled it in that His life is the, you know, the fulfillment of all the Messianic predictions. And thirdly, He fulfilled the purpose of the Old Testament. And this is the part I would like to draw a special attention to this morning. Paul would refer to the law as a tutor intended to lead us to Christ. Jesus is the completion and fulfillment of all the Old Testament's intended purpose. God gave the law, God gave the prophets for a reason. Not just to awaken man's conscience and that he would realize his need for a Savior, but to ultimately bring him to salvation that he would ultimately see Christ as the fulfillment of all the law's purpose. Galatians 3.24 Therefore the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We were never to be justified by by the keeping of the law because we can't keep it. We're sinners. But we were to be brought to Christ wherein we could be justified by faith, by putting our trust in Jesus and what He has done. He fulfilled the law by providing the remedy for all of us lawbreakers. Think of this passage in Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God God intends us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, not by our own effort or our own uh, working in the flesh, but rather by faith in Christ, a conversion of spirit, being born again, in Christ. He says something very, uh, very controversial here in this passage we just read. I, I draw your attention again to verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. These are the religious leaders. These are, these are the law keepers. These are the guys that have devoted their whole life to keeping every minute detail of rule and regulation. And you're saying to us that, that our righteousness has to exceed theirs? How is that possible? I can't even begin to think about all the things that they're thinking about. How am I going to keep the law better than they do? That's their sole purpose and focus. How can we expect the righteousness of those who have devoted their whole life 
to actually be insufficient in the righteousness that Christ would accept from us. Well, we have to consider the righteousness of the Pharisees. What was the righteousness of the Pharisees? It was a righteousness um, that was kept by outward observance of laws and commandments. They prided themselves as the keepers of the law. They saw themselves as righteous and blameless. It was a self-righteousness. And self-righteousness always produces pride and the looking down and condemning of others. Self-righteousness always produces a hypocrisy, an outward conforming, but an inward corruption. Chuck Smith, he called the, the... Pharisees' righteousness, uh, rule book religion, living by a list of do's and don'ts. Jesus would later condemn these scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23:25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. I love the way Christ uh, just illustrates truth. Does it make any sense to clean only the outside of a cup and the inside is filthy? No, you would clean, of course, the inside. That's, in fact, that's the more important portion to clean. The outside can actually be dirty, but the inside, which holds that which you're going to drink, needs to be clean. And Jesus says, you Pharisees, you take, a, boy, you take great pride in washing the outside of your vessel, but inwardly, you are corrupt. Inwardly, you are full of extortion. You take advantage of others. And you're full of self-indulgence. It's a self, selfish life. You're primarily focused on yourself. Self is number one. That's your primary concern, even though you may look outwardly religious. Well, listen, you don't have to be religious to be self-righteous. Certainly those that are caught up in uh, man's tradition and religion do become prideful and self-righteous. But you don't have to be religious to be self-righteous. I'm sure you've met many self-righteous people that are not at all religious. You just ask them what they think about themselves. I'm a good person. I'm honest. I work hard. I don't steal. I've never murdered anyone. Is there a, if there is a heaven, of course I'm going there. I don't know if I believe in heaven, but if there is one, I'm going because I'm a good person. And if there's a hell, which I doubt that there is, I know I won't be there because I'm a good person. I'm not worried at all about hell. It seems that the only people in hell will be Hitler, Charles Manson, and maybe your boss that you hate at work. <laughs> No one else is going there because everyone else is self-prescribed good people. And this self-justification, this self-righteousness, we see a lot of this today. We see a whole kind of self-justification, kind of redefining what's right and wrong. We simply redefine it to fit our lifestyle. What used to be wrong is now right because that's the way I want to live now. And so there's nothing wrong with it. Morality becomes subjective. Right and wrong fluctuate according to man's ideas and feelings. Laws become a matter of preference and popular opinion. 
Isn't that somewhat descriptive of the culture and society that, that we are now living in? Things changing. Things radically changing. Just in recent time. Things that you know, we could have never imagined being you know, kind of up for discussion and legal review are now like, really? This is now the norm? This is now described as right and good? And any view other than, our, other than this new definition is actually intolerant and bad and evil? I wonder what we'll look like in ten years. Because the society is already floating on a sea of relativism. No moral absolutes, no foundation, no anchor, no unmoving point of reference. This is why Jesus is bringing such priority to the Word of God. When a culture, when a society, when a people, when a church, when Christians, when believers, when denominations begin to move away from the unmovable anchor of God's Word, then we are left dependent upon man's definitions, man's relative opinion about right and wrong. That's a dangerous place to be when you judge your own righteousness based on your own standard. You have no outward accountability, no outward standard, no outward foundation to measure yourself against. It's just what you think. Remember in the book of of Judges, it said everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. They thought they were doing what was right, but it was right only in their own eyes and completely departed from the Word of God. What kind of righteousness is Jesus talking about? What kind of righteousness is Jesus calling His disciples to? He says it's got to be much more righteous than the Pharisees. It's a righteousness that comes to those that are poor in spirit. It's a righteousness that comes not from outward conforming, but inward conversion. It's a righteousness that comes from God working on the heart through relationship with His Son Christ. Jesus is actually, I believe, preparing His listeners for the message He will eventually bring, and that is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus is getting ready to expound on the law and it's going to search into every area and intention of a man's heart. And he's looking to awaken their heart, awaken their conscience that, listen, you don't get righteous by keeping rules or by self-describing yourself as righteous. You need to look at the Word of God honestly and recognize that the righteousness you need is going to take a transformation from within. It's going to take atonement and forgiveness and mercy. It's going to take a righteousness that has to be imparted to you by a gracious and loving God. And He has provided that way. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. It's a righteousness by grace through faith in Christ. Jesus introducing this new section and uh, establishing the priority of God's Word, the law, and the commandments. Now He begins to teach from the commandments themselves. Take a look with me in verse 21. He first begins to teach about anger. You have heard it said, excuse me, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. 
and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Jesus begins to discuss the commandment, you shall not murder. And he elaborates on this commandment. He, he applies it in a much deeper way than just the literal act of murder. You see, the Pharisees believed as long as they never committed the act of murder, they were righteous and blameless in this area of the law. Well, I've never murdered anybody. Therefore, I'm a lawkeeper. I'm righteous before God. These were the same Pharisees who would plot and scheme to put Jesus to death. But they themselves didn't crucify him. The Romans did. Can't blame us. We're not murderers. We're righteous before the law. Jesus probes the heart. Jesus penetrates much deeper. Jesus reveals that both anger and hatred in the heart are also condemned by the law. When God says, Thou shalt not murder, He is also speaking to the anger and the hatred, which are the seeds of murder in, in the heart. It is not, you know, it's not to be understood as well as long as I don't technically murder, I'm innocent of the command. No, the command speaks, of course, of the, of the greatest act of anger and hatred, but it covers the entire spirit of anger and hatred. Now, Jesus is not saying that anger is the same as murder. Jesus is not equating anger with murder. We were all murderers, if that's true. But he is saying that anger and hatred are also sinful and disobedient to the commandment that says, Thou shalt not murder. He's, he's applying this commandment into the intentions of a man's heart, which is really what God is interested in. God is interested in what's going on in your heart. A commentary on this word, angry. <clears throat> A Greek commentator says that this anger is described this way. It's the anger which broods, the anger which will not forget, the anger which refuses to be pacified, the anger which seeks revenge. This is not just a, a moment of anger. This is an anger that is seething, an anger that really is affecting the heart of a man. Jesus will give kind of three applications here as we, we kind of go back through what we just read. I, he's going to talk about our words. He's going to talk about our worship. And then he talks about our walk. Let's consider again just what he says about the words. He says, um, Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, You fool, shall be in the danger of hellfire. He speaks about that the kind of anger that really rises up into name-calling. 
Raka. Many have tried to translate this word Raka. Empty head, idiot, knucklehead, whatever you want to put it into modern language. You jerk, you stupid idiot. It's just this contemptuous dismissal of someone else that you, you, know, you despise. And of course, the word fool. I think we understand what that means. It's that wrathful word, that corrupt word. I want to remind you of what Paul said in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 29. He says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that which would build up one another, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You know, we might all stand before the command, Thou shalt not murder, and feel somewhat relieved that we are innocent of having broken that command. But if we allow the intention of that command to search our hearts, if we allow what Jesus says, if we allow what Paul expounding on the same principle here in the book of Ephesians, if we allow that to explore our hearts, I think we would all say, Lord, I've fallen short. I've not technically murdered, but boy, I've had all kinds of anger and malice and and hatred in my heart. And oftentimes it's, it's come out in words, corrupt words. Any word that isn't building up, any word that isn't imparting grace to the hearers. Interesting that Paul in this, in this section says in verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I believe that many times I have said things in a moment of anger, in a moment of frustration, and it's come out of my mouth, and I've grieved the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who's living within me. The Holy Spirit who is imparting God's grace and empowerment to my life, and how I've set Him aside to say what's on my mind. (laughs) And oftentimes the Holy Spirit rising up in my own heart, in my own conscience, you know, that little red flag, don't say it. Get out of my way. He deserves it. She deserves it. And boom, out it comes. And the Holy Spirit is grieved. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. (laughs) The noise of wrath and anger. Evil speaking. Put it away. Instead, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, even as God and Christ forgave you. So you see Jesus, He's bringing to life the commandment. He's, he's tearing down this, this, this notion that somehow because you've never murdered anybody, you're a good person. God has seen what's going on in your heart. God has heard what you've said under your breath. How many of you have had your own arguments in your own mind? I'm going to give him a piece of my mind and it's all thought out and then they're going to say this and then I'm going to say that and before I even get with the person, I'm already mad. I've already argued with them for a half hour. And then, guess what? As soon as I see them, I'm ready. I'm charged. These seething things that go on in the heart, Jesus is speaking to that. Husbands and wives. Church, I've had the responsibility of 
counseling with many husbands and wives over the years of ministry, trying to bring peace, trying to bring strength and help to to a marriage. You would be surprised. Maybe you wouldn't be, but I have been very shocked just to hear what husbands and wives can say to one another, even in a counseling session. Things that I wouldn't say to my worst of enemies and husbands and wives becoming so bitter, so hurt, so frustrated that it just seethes out of them in hurtful words. It's not just husbands and wives. It happens amongst family. It happens amongst friends. It happens amongst Christians. Jesus is bringing the word into focus and he said, listen, your words matter. Your words are merely the revelation of what's really going on within and how we need to allow God to to make us righteous in this area. Give us the grace to change. Give us the grace to be tender-hearted, forgiving, even as God in Christ has forgiven me. Not just words, but also worship. Look again in our text, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Interesting. Jesus said, listen, your relationship with one another directly affects your relationship with God. You cannot disconnect them. I've got this great, close, devoted walk with the Lord. I just don't like people. I just can't get along with the people that are somehow a part of the church. I love Christ. I just don't like Christians. You know, we get frustrated with one another, and Jesus is speaking to that. They are interconnected. They cannot be separated. If your brother has something against you, this is, this is interesting. Jesus says, listen, you may be all right, but you know somebody else is not all right with you. You need to even be concerned about that. We can't just dismiss it. Well, that's just his problem. That's just her problem. I'm fine. I'm not upset. I'm not angry. That's just on you. Jesus said, listen, if you know that someone else is offended, that someone else is is broken in relationship with you, you need to put your gift down, your expression of worship, your drawing close to the Lord. Hold on a moment. Be proactive. Go out and make this right. Then come and worship. Then come and offer your heart and your prayer to the Lord. 1 John 4 and verse 20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Good, I'm so glad those are up for you. This commandment we have from Him, it's a commandment, not a suggestion, not an option, not just kind of a, well, if you can. He who loves God must love his brother also. Peter would tell husbands to honor their wives lest their prayers be hindered. Imagine that. Imagine how we treat one another in relationship actually can affect our relationship with the Lord. 
It's clearly taught. In the Word, it is clearly spoken of here by Jesus. Set it down. Don't come in and, and, and offer all this love and worship and praise and gift to God when in your own heart you're divided with those that God loves. You need to get it right. You can't diss your brother, your sister, your spouse and worship God. True worship produces true love for one another. You cannot take on Christ and the Holy Spirit and the radical new life and change that He brings and it not affect the way you relate to others. Because God is love. Christ is the expression of God's love. And as Christ moves in and His character begins to transform you, it has to manifest in His nature, His character, love. 1 John 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for, God is, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. You cannot but be affected by the love of God for, for others if God's love is truly abiding in you. It is, the, it is the greatest evidence of your faith. The fruit of love. Not only words, not only worship, but finally here today. Take a look at Jesus in verse 25, back to our text. Just talking about our walk, our manner of life. Verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. It seems to me Jesus is using a very simple life illustration to communicate the idea that, listen, you need to be a peacemaker. You need to be looking to reconcile. This should be the way you live your life, your conduct, your walk, your manner of living. You're not this person that always has to be right. You're this person that, you know, uh, contentious, always upset, always offended, always in conflict and controversy. You know, in business, there, there's this term, you know, oh, that person or that company, that organization is very litigious. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll sue you over anything. They'll take you to court at the drop of a hat. They're looking for a conflict to, to show you that you're wrong and they're right, to justify their position. You think you're so right and you want to bring your adversary before the judge, Jesus says, be careful, you may end up wrong and punished instead. Can I just say that being right is not all it's cracked up to be? <laughs> being right is not all it's cracked up to be. I like to be right, which is why I usually am. <laughs> I've learned that uh, oftentimes being right is a matter of perspective, a matter of opinion. And I have found that sometimes the cost of being right is too great. Peace is better. I want to walk in peace at work, at home, church, holding grudges, marking every wrong, critical. Oh, 
you know, seeing every misstep of everyone around us. Remember how Jesus began in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. James 3.17, I quoted this recently in one of my messages. It's one of my favorite verses. It says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. I love that phrase, willing to yield. That's the wisdom from above. The wisdom from God is going to create a willingness to yield rather than holding your ground, digging your heels in, extracting every ounce of justification. Look to restore relationships. Paul would say in another place in Corinthians, why not suffer the wrong? You know what? You want to drag your brother, your sister into court? Why not just suffer the wrong and let God defend you? Let God take care of it. Make peace quickly, Jesus is saying. I want to close with a verse that my wife shared with me here recently out of the book of Job. I'd read this verse, but I'd never seen it in this light. And, and I, want to, I want to share it with you in the, with the idea that you would be looking to make peace and restore relationships that have been broken. Job 14 and verse 7. For there is hope for a tree, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. You know, some, re- some relationships have been cut down like trees. Differences have just been unreconcilable. But Job here, this passage speaks to the, the idea that, you know, even a tree that is cut down and, the, and, and you know, the root is grown old and, and the stump is just you know, kind of dead in the ground, yet at the scent of water, at the scent of water, it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. I encourage you today to consider if there are broken relationships, Could it be that you might be able to be that scent of water? Could you be that restoring element, that restoring uh, expression, a scent of water, a willingness to see if there's any way something could spring back and we could have relationship again? These things, they, they are not in our natural nature. This is not the way we as humans are wired. We are selfish. We are sinful. And this is what Jesus is getting at. For for, for the righteous, for for the Pharisees, those that have it wired religiously. And maybe even in the church today. Oh, I've been a Christian. I, I got my Christian routine. I'm in church. I read. I, I fast. I'm, I've got it together as a Christian. Be careful. Let God's Word... Don't ever get to that place where God's Word can't probe and really make you poor in spirit again. Humble you and bring you back to where you're just a sinner before God. 
needing his grace, needing his mercy, needing his touch of love. You see, when you see yourself in that light, which is the true light, that's what compels you to be gracious and merciful to one another. That's what allows you to be willing to yield and to be, you know, a scent of water. How good the Lord has been to me. How many times the Holy Spirit has been that scent of water in my heart and revived me because of His mercy, because of His grace. Jesus bringing the Word to life. They, they had this rigid righteousness by what they thought was obedience. Christ said, oh, what God is looking for is much deeper. He's looking for an inward conversion. He's looking for salvation to come into your life by the grace that He has in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to You today and we are, we are blessed to read the words of our Savior. I pray that we would be moved in our spirit. I pray that we would be poor in spirit today. That we would all come before you today and be humbled. And reminded that it is by grace that I've been saved. It is because of what Jesus has done for me. Lord, that's, that levels all playing fields. We are all but poor in spirit at your feet today. And I pray that you would bring the word to life in our own walk. Lord, in our, in our words, in our worship, in our walk, that we would allow the grace of God to bring the righteousness of God in Christ not only to our standing before You, but Lord, in our conduct, in our character, that we might be changed into the image of the One we worship. Jesus, it really is all about You. As we close today, and just keeping our heads bowed in prayer, I do want to give opportunity, if you're here today, and the Lord has spoken to your heart, and you want to respond. I want to offer two prayers today. The first one, of course, those that need to simply receive Jesus. You're here today and you know about Jesus. You've maybe even been religious in times. But you know that the righteousness that Jesus is speaking of is not the righteousness that you have in your life. He's talking about transformation. He's talking about coming into your life as Lord and Savior. And you want to be forgiven. And you want the righteousness that only God can give you today. And you realize that being a good person is really just not true before the Word of God. I'd love to pray for you. If you're here today and you want to receive Christ, He's here. He loves you. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. If you're here today and you need Jesus... I would ask you just to raise your hand right where you're seated. I want to pray for you. Anybody here today, you want to receive Christ into your life, the righteousness of God imparted to you through relationship with Him.
second response that I want to pray for, of course, would be those of you that are living with broken relationships. Maybe someone close to you in family, and maybe a co-worker, maybe a friend, maybe a brother or sister in Christ, maybe somebody in the church. God has spoken to your heart and you realize today that He wants you to be a set of water. He wants you to be willing to yield. He wants you to allow Him to change your heart. You're angry. You're bitter. You're, you're resentful. You're unforgiving. And God wants to touch you today. The Lord has spoken to you in that way. I want to pray for you very specifically. And again, I would ask you simply to raise your hand so that I can pray for you. A number of hearts here today. Anyone else, just before I pray, God bless you. And so, Lord, for these that have responded to your word, these are, these are your disciples, Lord. Jesus, you spoke these words to your followers. And yes, your words bring a certain light and a certain revealing and a certain conviction to heart. But, Lord, the purpose of the law is to lead us to the cross. And so today, Lord, we come, we bring these things, we confess them before you, and we lay them at your feet, and we ask you, first of all, to forgive us. And Jesus, we ask you to empower us. Lord, help me to be that scent of water. Lord, help me, if it be possible, to be that agent of peace, that, that willingness to yield, that forgiving, tender heart that you have so shown me, oh, that I might impart it to those that you love. So work in our hearts for your glory and for your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.